What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes. I'm Corey Wong. Today's a good day. Today's a really good day. In my top five guitar players of all time, standing out in a unique way amongst them all is Vince Gill. Vince is in insane, <laughs> insane guitar player. Now, people know him as a triple threat singer, songwriter, guitar player. I see him as a triple threat within the guitar sphere because if he was just a Strat guy, he could be that. If he was just Telly guy, he could be that. If he was just acoustic strummer guy, he could be the king of any of those three things. But he's all of them. And you know what? It seems like he doesn't even really care. Why? Because he just cares about music and the thing that's happening. And he cares so much about the song. Vince's musicianship and maturity has grown through decades of putting out albums. He's got over 21 Grammys, 18 CMA awards. He's had over 40 singles on the Billboard charts. That is ridiculous. That's why today's a good day. It's because I interviewed Vince Gill. Wow. It's pretty fun. I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good week trying to practice some downstroke funk. Just doing a bunch of funk patterns, but downstrokes only. All downstrokes, really tight sort of thing. That's what I've been working on. That's what I've been practicing. I don't know what you guys are practicing, but that's what I'm working on right now. Also, I'm trying to get my YouTube game together. Yeah, I'm like 10 years late to the game, but you know what? I don't think there's such thing as too late to the game. I think it's just really fun for me to explore a different outlet to be creative. There's a way to be creative making music, both in the live and in the studio realm. You can be creative in different ways in those different realms. But also on camera, there's a different way to be creative in how you present yourself, what kinds of things you present, and how you edit the videos and do all that sort of stuff. So I've been having a lot of fun doing that. So, you know, if you're on the YouTube as the old... So if you're on the YouTube as somebody much older might say... By the way, speaking of, of older phrases, Vince Gill just told me that he has never sent a text message in his life. That is incredible. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling now. Let's just get to the interview because Vince is the coolest, nicest guy. And what a treat it is to talk to such a legend. Let's hit it. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Getgood, and Tozin Abasi. The archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the Fortin Amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that Nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug-in here for every type of player, and you can get a 14-day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. Well, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's really a treat to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for wanting me. Of course. A little bit surprising and good fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Well, just to get us warmed up here, I have one burning question because there's <laughs> a rumor floating around that you have one of Jimi Hendrix's guitars. 
I did. I'll tell you the story. Wait, about that what do you guitar. mean you did? You no, did no, no, you no, no. Sell let, it? Me, let me tell you the story. When he was a kid, when he was young, he he came to Nashville and spent time in Nashville playing with Billy and going in all the clubs. He was stationed at, at Fort Campbell in Clarksville, and he would come down, I guess, on the weekends and play the clubs with Billy. And um, this Strat was uh, the Strat he played when because Billy owned it. Yeah, and he played it all the time when he was when he was around here. And the guy that had it was a friend of mine, and he sold it to me because he was he'd fallen on hard times and i said well let me buy it so you don't lose it you know so i bought the strap from him and i said but if you want it back come and get it get back on your feet and wow. so five ten years later he came back said can i get my strap back and i said absolutely so yeah it, it, in a way it was uh, it, it had a neat history and but I, it had to go back to its rightful owner wow that is incredible <laughs> and good on you for for having the empathy to do that well you know i i, I think certain guitars are certain people's thing. It's part of the reason they sound the way they do, they play the way they do. And and that was the, the case with Bob. He's, his name's Bob Britt. This mm. guy I'm talking about, he plays with Delbert McClinton. He's played with a little bit of everybody over the years, Dylan and a lot of great people. And that Strat has been kind of his go-to guitar for forever. And, and you just don't want to see somebody lose yeah. something that's such a part of them. Yeah. You mentioned a guitar being so much a part of a person. And I don't necessarily have, I have my baby, my, my guitar that I've had since I was a teenager. Right. I'm a Strat guy uh -huh. through and through, and I've been a Strat guy. Some people refer to you as a triple threat, which you are, of songwriter, singer, guitar player. But if we dive deeper on the guitar side, because <laughs> we're talking guitars here, yeah. I find you the triple threat of telly guy, Strat guy, acoustic guy, and I do not see enough respect or talk on the forums, if you will, about your Strat playing. Because to me, you could totally be the Strat guy. Oh, thank you. But I, you know, I love, I love all, I love the way. To me, a guitar is like if you're gonna paint a, if you're gonna paint a painting. There's certain colors that you want to use, and, and certain colors are not a PAF Les Paul or a this or that. You want the the right sound for the the part you're playing. And I've got a Strat. My favorite Strat is a '59 slabboard Strat that was purchased. I don't know if it was purchased uh, by Dwayne Eddy, but Dwayne Eddy got it in 1959. They might have given it to him, for right. all I know. But he never played a Fender. So he gave that guitar to his son, and his son played it forever and ever. And, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, tracked me down and said, hey, would you be interested in my Strat? And I played it, and it was by far the greatest neck I've ever felt on a Stratocaster. Just the right shape for my hands, everything. You know, that's... That to me is everything. If you can find the find the instrument that that's that fits in your hands the way it's supposed to, you know, I've got it I've got a dozen old strats, 54, 55, 56, all the years, and they're all bigger, they're all chunkier, they're all different profiles. And and yeah. this one is the one. And it's the most inspiring to play, and, and that's the one that I'm crazy about. But it's got a neat history because it was Dwayne Eddy's brand new. Yeah. Pretty cool. See, I have a thing with this with vintage strats, because I love to have 22 frets. And I okay. like the thinner profile neck. So what it does is it saves me a lot of money <laughs> from having to buy. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, and it's so, like you said, it's so funny how I can pick up, I'm so crazy about these old things. I can pick up a guitar and pretty much know by the profile of the neck what year it is, you know? Really? And, yeah. And wow. and they're just, there were certain characteristics of, of certain years that, that you just find. And to me, for a Strat, didn't get right until... The late 50s, 58, 59, mm. some of those necks were a little smaller like you would like. I don't have big hands. I have pretty small hands for as big a man as I am, but uh, that's the one for me that kills me, you know? 
First yeah. grant I ever got was from my best friend, a kid I met when I was in sixth grade. And he just passed away this year. It killed me. His name was Benny Garcia. And his father was probably one of the best jazz guitar players that ever lived. Grew up with Charlie Christian back in Oklahoma and played with Bob Wills, played with Benny Goodman, played with all these people. And his son and I, our first friendship, he was the first musical friend I ever had that played guitar like I did. And uh, the first strat I ever had was he had one. He didn't have much interest in it. And it was a mid-60s, been refinished. And so I got I got that Strat from him for $200 and a pair of boots. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so the, the game was always going to be, at some point, I'll give you your Strat back for $200 and a pair of boots. <laughs> I love that. That's great. And what about a telly? Do you, what do you consider yourself? If you were to say, all right, you get one guitar the rest of your life, or what are you? Like for me, I say, I'm a Strat You're going to be a Strat guy? Yeah. I don't know that I, I don't know. A tele's pretty. Uh, I have a hard time using a strat in, the, in that back position, mm. you know, the, and, and and not being too bright. Yeah, because the because the pickup itself kind of you know it goes it slants more towards the small strings, and I think that's why Hendrix sounded the way he did because he flipped it over. Yeah, and that back pickup went the opposite way in yeah. the way that he played it. But I don't know. My, my first guitar as a kid was a three thirty five when I was ten. That's a pretty versatile guitar. The tele has probably been the one instrument that most people associate with my playing. Yeah. That's so funny to me because my first really potent musical experience with your music, yeah, honestly, was the How Great Thou Art, Carrie. you and Carrie Underwood at the, I think it was the ACM Girls' Night Out Awards or something. Right. Yeah, they did a, an honoring night of, of a bunch of different people. And you played, you just played, basically played the melody and a guitar solo over that, but it just melted me through my computer <laughs> speakers. And Thanks. I realized in that moment, I can't believe how powerful that moment must have been in the room. Because yeah. right now I am literally crying because of Vince's guitar through these computer speakers. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story about that performance. They were going to do this show where they were uh, honoring six women, five or six women. Yeah. And they got a different artist to go and sing one of that person's songs and then sing one with them. So I went to them and I said, hey, I, I would prefer uh, the second song to not sing and just play the guitar. And they all said, no, 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 you can't do that. And I said, no, it'll be different than anything else on the show. And I said, it'll let Carrie shine and and blah, blah, blah. And they all fought me. Carrie fought me. They fought me. Everybody fought me. And I said, well, I'm not singing. So if you want me to play, great. If you don't, I'll go home. But I kind of was kind of forceful in, in, in wanting to do that because I said, hey, this guitar has a voice just like I do. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't have words, but it's a voice. And it wound up being a really great thing. You know, it, it turned out to be different than anything else that was on the show. The yeah. fact that it was that old hymn, all those things, you know, it was like, you know, most people would assume there's two strikes already. <laughs> you're not singing and you're, and you're doing an old hymn. We're, we're really, we're really in trouble now, but, and she just killed it. It wouldn't have had the impact had I sung the second verse. Mm. That, that it did. And the fact that I just played it and it was really a, a pretty neat moment. I remember that well. And in the room, you felt it blowing up oh, and, yeah. and just there's something going on right here that's pretty rare. It was fun. Those moments are so subjective, like feeling that thing. Is there any sense of objectivity that you can put to a moment like that? I don't know why. You know, I just don't know why that, that moments stick out like they do. Yeah. But that to me, it's what I'm kind of, I'm always kind of shooting for that mm -hmm. in that I don't want to be what everything else has been. All night long. I want to find mm. out what everybody else is doing. Say, let's do something different. 
you know, is to, to give yourself a chance to either, you know, fail miserably or to stand out <laughs> in yeah. a great way. Well, that's also, that performance to me is a perfect example of a collaboration mm. where she does her thing in such a strong way. And somebody who loves Carrie Underwood would leave that, watching that performance, thinking, oh my gosh, that was the most incredible thing that I've ever heard Carrie do. And many people could say the same thing about you and your guitar playing in there, the way that I feel. Like that to me is my favorite Vince Gill guitar moment, which mm. maybe seems weird for, no, I, for a I guitar understand. player because there's so much just guitar gymnastics that you can pull off that sure. it might be one of the things that you'd expect a guitar player to be a fan of. But there was such a human connection to that moment and that playing that will stick with me the rest of my life. I think that what you find out as life moves on is that it's the emotion of music that is the most inspiring. It's more impressive to me than something that's impressive. I'd mm. rather be moved by by something someone played or something someone sang than blown away. You know, that, that, that doesn't, when you just blow somebody away and impress them with all this stuff, that's nice, but it doesn't last. You know, it's just in that moment, it's kind of impressive and, and it's a wow factor and all that. But at the same time, if something reaches, reaches into you and tugs at your emotion and all of that, I think it has a, it has a much more long lasting appeal. Mm. So how do you go about if you're not quote unquote feeling it in the moment on a session on a gig how do you how do you conjure up that emotion for yourself well, some days you some days you get it some days you don't you know that's just that's just life i think there's some days you know in the old days you you would just go ahead and do it you know mm -hmm. and and live with it and deal with it but like i'll be here at the house and we we'll want to work on a vocal or something and i'll sing sing it to, through a couple times and go hey my voice just didn't it's not happening and be be willing to shut it down mm. and wait for it you know i think that's hard for 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 younger people is to is to have as much patience as maybe sometimes is needed you know patience yeah. for the right lyric to come along or patience for the right little right little part to come along and a lot of times you just you've grabbed the wrong instrument and you're kind of going about it in the wrong way and you point yourself in a in, in a place that you maybe can't get out of. But, you know, I'm also, I, I love first impressions. Somebody throws you something and so says, play a solo on this. And usually your first impression is kind of good. You know, it's yeah. got warts on it and it's kind of jacked up. But then you kind of go, okay, let me find the spirit of that first impression and refine that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting in that the more you mess with it, the more you uncover and the more you re maybe realize, hey, I was, I was, play me what I, play me where I was when I first started. And then you go, oh, I was way more into the, I was in a better place there. For me, I, I've got enough, I've got enough will willingness in myself to say that one, that's not great. Let's try something else or get somebody mm -hmm. else or find another time or, you know, move on. You know, it's okay. I think when you're tracking a record too, that if you think you're going to hook every song, 10 or 12 songs, you're mistaken. You're going to miss a couple. You know, you just, it's not going to be, be mm -hmm. quite right. And so you just put it aside, do it a different time or try it differently or, or let it go. That's a hard thing to do is let stuff go. Say maybe that's quite not good enough to be in the mix with, with the rest of this. How do you get yourself disconnected to a song? How can you take a step back? What's your process for that to really just look at it and see, is this good enough? I don't know. I don't think my ears have ever lied to me, mm. you know? My eyes have, <laughs> but uh, my ears don't. You know, they kind of 
They know when something's amiss. They know when something's, if something's distracting or something's not quite there. You know, they're pretty, they're pretty good. My ears have led me pretty well over the years. And, and uh, but once again, you know, they say about art, it's never finished. It's just a, it's never finished. It's just abandoned. Mm. You, know, you kind of got to go, hey, this was Thursday. This was all I had. It's the best I could do today. And now, now with the beauty of technology, I don't think it's changed all that much. In that I was having a conversation with the late Fred Foster, who produced all these great Roy Orbison records back in the day and signed a bunch of great artists to, to record deals and had a company called Monument and Dear Friend. And we were, we were talking about how we weren't as good as you guys used to be. You used to just cut the track live. Everything was live. And he said, well, kind of. He said, but now the next time you listen to this great classic Roy Orbison song, he said, you have to understand that Roy's voice didn't open up until the 47th take. Ooh. He said, and then from 47 to 51, his voice was the best. So we cut those four takes together and that made the record. So it's the wow. same process that you're doing now. You, you, you go and you go and you go and you, you flip, you slide, you move, you do all this stuff that you're doing, but you're still just trying to find the best performance out of however the technology will allow you to do it. And that's what, that's what we do. We just keep, we just keep messing with it until it, you know, until it seems to, seems to, to, to feel right. Yeah. You've done a lot of records over the course of your career, and you've done multiple processes to make albums. What's the biggest difference you notice now when you're making albums compared to when you first got started? The, the, like I said, the technology's different, and everybody puts everything up on a grid. They do all this stuff. You can move. You can slide. You can, I mean, once they told me what the technology was, I drive them crazy using it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but <laughs> all in all, it's still, it's still the same thing. You're just you're trying to serve a song. Mm -hmm. You have this song, and then all these guys get together and go, what's the best thing for this song? Mm -hmm. What's the best thing I can play to make this better? And you try not to be distracting, but you try to be innovative. You, it's all the same thing. You're just playing to the best of your abilities and, and what you think fits. You know, Authenticity is really important to me. If you're making a country record, don't try to, don't try to trick me by putting a, you know, a synth or a B3 or this or that on something that's really traditional make it exactly what it's supposed to be and mm -hmm. vice versa you know we the, the, we have a a long history of of trying to almost water down records by putting sure. fiddle or steel on them or something to make them appear to be more country and i never you know nobody ever said about a rolling stones record that i think that rocks just a little too hard you yeah. know and they say that in our world they say that's a little too that's a little too country, or that's a little too rock and roll for. They probably won't play that because that guitar is a little too trashy, a little too blown up, a little too whatever. And and I, I love it when when things are are their most authentic. You know, if if something's supposed to rock, let it. You know, and and vice versa. So I'm all about authenticity. I think as much as anything, I don't want to sound, I don't want to be singing. I, I got to you know over the years I've worked on about a thousand different artists' records as a singer and a musician and songwriter and stuff and all I ever wanted to do was what I was when I was doing something if I was I got to sing a, a duet with Diana Krall mm -hmm. it's a jazz song that I wrote and I go I don't want to sound like a country guy trying to sing a jazz song I want to sound like a jazz singer so you use your ears and you, you, you hopefully make it feel as appropriate and as authentic as it can yeah so when you approach playing on other people's albums or collaborating with people I've heard several different things where you're side musician or it seemed as if you just showed up and were one of the session cats. You've obviously got your own artist career, of course. 
And you had the, you got the gig that so many people would have wanted, which is Eagles. <laughs> and because it's not the Eagles, it's Eagles, right? right? You're correct. <laughs> you got- you Donald, got, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> there was actually a side note. There was a funny moment. There was an era in the, in the band Wolfpack that I'm the guitar player for, where there was so much talk about that band and Theo accidentally tweeted something along the lines of, my goal in life is to move to California and join the Eagles. And there was all this controversy in the band. And we were talking for months about, like, dude, it's Eagles, it's just not Eagles. the Eagles or something. And he was so <laughs> mad at himself. And one of the fans even printed it on a tank top that he was wearing at some of the gigs. His, they were printing his tweets or something. And there's been... There's been lots of, anyways, that's a funny, uh, that's great. Funny thing. But joining Eagles, playing on other people's projects, some people are going to ask you to come in and be Vince Gill. Other people are going to come and ask you to join and throw down some great guitar in a couple takes because that's what they want. How do you navigate those different roles and how do you apply yourself or contribute when you're trying to figure out those roles are being asked of you? Well, I think I I generally know going in that that's that's my role. Okay. I think you know, but the fact that I've I've done all those jobs my whole career, it's not something new to me mm -hmm. to go be a sideman, to go be the house guitar player on a TV show, or um, or join this band. That's what Don's. That's my favorite thing he said about me. They said, "Why him?" They said, "Well, he knows how to be in a band." Mm. You know, and that's a great compliment. You know, yeah. and and I knew I knew going in to play with those guys. You know, I've known all of them for most of my life, and and I knew what would be expected. You know, they they want things as they as they are. They don't mm -hmm. want you riffing. They don't want extra things. They don't want you know taking liberties. And and it's a great experience. At now I'm 63, but at 60 to go. Okay, I have to go do this the way they would prefer it be done. I can't yeah. just say no. I'm I'm who I am, and I'll do whatever I want. It wasn't the job. And so I think that what you do is you know you know going in what what you're what you're supposed to do. And some people would always ask, why do you keep doing sessions when you've done so well as an artist's career? And I said, well, it's harder. It's a mm. harder job. You know, you, you don't just get to go do what you want, and then everybody follows you. When you have to make yourself part of the process and 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 blend and do to what is expected of what they've created. It's a harder job, and I, I like the challenge of it, you know. And that's how I first met. The first time I worked with Don uh, was on his Cass County record. I knew the minutia of which he worked and and what would be expected and how hard I was going to work and you know to every nth degree of perfection. And I don't mind that. I like that. And so we went in there, and he showed me the song he wanted me to sing on, and and he said, I want this exact part. And I said, okay. I said, it's not quite how I heard it, but I'll do that for you. Mm -hmm. You know, so I sang it and I got it finished and, and he listened back. He goes, great. Everything I hoped it'd be. And then he said to me, he said, now you said something to me before we started that was interesting. He said, you, you said you didn't hear it that way. I said, no. He said, well, would you sing it to me how you hear it? I said, okay. So I went back in, sang it. And he just immediately said, that's better. Let's start over. So it told mm -hmm. me right away about him that he was not a control freak. He was not all these things that sometimes people perceive you to be or, or say that you are. And, and I, I found him to be refreshingly honest and mm. really enjoyed the process of working with him. The, the great thing about it is it's black and white. 
you don't you don't have to worry. Is he like this? Does he not like this? He just tells you, and it's man, it's just straight up, and there's yeah. no no mess, and it's refreshing as hell to to be held to that standard and to be held to doing it a certain way. And, and he, it's, it's been great. You know, he knows I'm not out there grandstanding, trying to garner attention when we're playing live and I'm just doing my job. And it's been an amazing experience. And it, what it's taught me more than anything, I think is how iconic those songs are. Ooh, and yeah. when you, when you talk about a career that, that has the longevity of someone like them, it's because of those songs you know, and, and and then you then you get under the hood of all the parts of those songs, and they're all equally as infectious, and they're all equally as memorable, and and it's it's profound. And if I went to see him, I wouldn't want to hear some guy wanking another solo over "New Kid in Town" or over you know whatever song it you choose it to be. I said, man, I'd want to I'd want to hear it the way I've been hearing it for forty years. It's pretty great the way it is. Yeah. So what is it about those songs? And songs in general, what makes a song iconic to you? Man, I don't, I don't know that I have that answer. Once again, those those records, going back to them, it's it's not like a jam band. It's not like the Allman Brothers, where there's tons of riffing and a lot of guitar solos and this and that. Everything has a point, you know, and everything has a purpose, and and only that. And I think that's easily what makes some of those songs stand out to be as great a songs as they are. Is everything about the way they recorded that song is only in the service of that song. I, I marvel at some of their songs, like New Kid in Town, the, the way it changes keys, the way it goes into the bridge, and it, it's like, it's one of the greatest musical things I've ever heard, where it uses an E major and an E minor, a B minor and a B major, and an A, and an A major and an A minor, all this stuff, and you go, how, where did that come from? You know, it's yeah. really brilliant, you know, inside, inside the hood of a lot of that stuff, and I don't know, I think music is still it's it's something that there's no answer to it. It's not like a math problem where you figure it out or a ball game where, hey, I beat that team and we beat you guys and whatnot. It just goes up in the air. You know, this music yeah. comes out in the air and you go, hey, I like that. I'm not crazy about that, but I love that. Kind of like that. And you just kind of have this, this thing with things that speak to you. There's great singers out there that I think are brilliant singers, but their voices don't reach inside of me and, and, and touch me. Some yeah. singers that may be not as good a singer, but something about the sound of their voice is like it stirs something in me, and that's all I've ever, you know, all I've ever known is I either like something or I don't. Mm -hmm. Count Basie, that's what he said. Two kinds of music, good and bad. Yeah, <laughs> there's certain Eagles songs that have so much intricacy in the parts and iconic things about every single aspect of it. Do you think? I guess the, my line of question, I'm, I, I don't exactly know how to ask it. Those albums took a lot of time to make. Absolutely. And nowadays, we don't seem to take, at least most albums that I've been a part of, I've never taken more than two weeks to make an album in the right. studio. And I wonder if that can be done outside of a band situation. Or does that sort of thing just take time? Why don't we see that sort of thing to the same extent these days? I don't know. You know, that's a great question. I mean, they did it because they that's the way they were wired. You know, I think that's the way they did everything, you know, was to excess, <laughs> sadly, <Yeah. laughs> in some <laughs> things. But, and once again, you know, some some people are about the moment. Some people are about the spontaneity of a moment. And mm -hmm. and that's what moves them. There's no right or wrong answer, I don't think, or right or wrong way to do something. You know, I think a lot of times in economics will dictate how long you can work on a record because at some point you run out of money. 
you know, you got a budget and hey, that's all the money we got. Okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and what's the what they say about the that knack record they made forty years ago, seventeen thousand dollar record. And it was massive. And it, people yeah. spend a half a million dollars on a record. A lot of it is kind of the way people are wired as much as anything else. They're sure. willing to to just go into the depths of, of all things of every part and I like it. I like that kind of you know, everything is, is important. I I look at a record, I look at the process as a very democratic process and, and also a very equal process that you're the sum of the parts, you know, and every part's equally as important. Every drum fill, every bass note, where the where it is frequency wise. I'm I'm the same way. I'm I'm like about every every little bitty thing and where it where it lands and where it goes. Yeah. How it's how it does sonically and does it distract? Does it, I mean, that's, I'm crazy about all the, the details. So you like, like to go down that meticulous road. I don't mind, but I'm pretty free spirit uh, sure. as a human being. You know, yeah. I'm, I, I live in the moment only. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about much, and, and I pretty much just, this, this right here is all I got, and I'm okay with it. All right, this is some good conversation. I got to remind you, though, have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You got to go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon, Wong. That's my last name. And while you're there, check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you, if you are looking for good, clean, or edge of breakup tones, this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps, a pedal board, EQ, three different cabs. Come on! You can use it live. You can use it in the studio. There's that 14-day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. I heard somewhere that you refuse to make an instrumental guitar album. <laughs> I just haven't. I don't, think I haven't. I don't think I'm interesting enough for 10 songs, you know? I've never, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the fact that I write songs with lyrics, but I love instrumental music. I love people that can play well, but it, it can't, it doesn't hold my attention for mm. as long as a song could if yeah. it had a story and it had a had all that kind of stuff. I'm I am not against it. It's just my sure. I think my personality and and the way I feel I don't have I've never had a, a an artist model guitar. Yeah. Any of that thing. My ego doesn't doesn't go down that road. You know, and I think it's as much about if somebody says you should write a book and I go, No, I should read a book, you know, before I write a book. But <laughs> uh it's my my personality is really more the reason why I don't feel like I have much of that show off kind of side to me. I'm I'm pretty I don't I don't want anybody to think I'm drawing attention to myself. I'm not crazy about that. Hmm. And I don't know why. Um I just find it more interesting to play within the, the confines of a song as a musician, yeah. you know. And when I first started, I mean if you look at country music's history, there's not a lot of guitar gods. Sure. Like there has been in rock and roll and blues and all that kind of stuff where you had guitar god after guitar god after guitar god. Hundreds of them. Country music never did. It was always about the singer and the song. And I knew kind of going in that forcing my guitar prowess, whatever it might be, upon everybody was probably not the wisest thing to to go in guns blazing as a guitar player. I said, I've got this unique voice and it does what it does. And I think that's my that's my ticket of where where things are going to work the best and let my guitar playing just kind of get discovered as mm-hmm. much as me trying to be in your face with it saying, hey, watch me, watch me, watch me. Yeah. And that's kind of how it unfolded. You know, guys would go, oh, I had never had, all the musicians knew. Sure. 
that I could play. And, I, and that was enough for me, you know, same reason I don't have a, I remember when <laughs> I've got that old white 53 Telecaster I've played for 42 years or whatever. And back in the nineties, Fender said, we want to make a Vince Gill model Telecaster. And I go, why? It doesn't make any sense. I already play your instrument every night. <laughs> what, what, what? And I said, you can try. And of course they built one. I go, yeah, I don't think so. I'm going to keep playing this old one. It suits me. And it's just, I guess, you know, as much personality, but I, you know, never say never. If I mm -hmm. could do a, a record that, that encompasses all the ways that I like to play the instrument, yeah. that might be interesting. If it had an element of bluegrass, if it had an element of jazz, if it had an element sure. of blues, if it had, if it went all those different ways, then it might be interesting to me to try to, to do something like that, that, that showcased the chameleon. And I guess that's probably... One thing I don't, I see myself more as a chameleon than a certain mm -hmm. stylist. Sure. Because I've got, you know, I play the Les Paul with a PAFs in it. I play the Telecaster chicken picking. I play the blues. I play a lot of bluegrass. I, you know, fat body. And you haven't jazz even guitars. mentioned your strat yet. Come on, Vince. I, I'm a strat man. <laughs> I like that you're a strat man. I'm trying to, trying to let you, let you be the strat king today. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I agree with you in a lot of guitar albums that I've heard. I get sick of the guitar about 25 minutes in. Yep. Even some of my favorite artists on the planet, I've yeah, seen exactly. some of my favorite guitar players do shows, and about 45 minutes in, I'm thinking, I'm ready to hear something else. So most of the albums that I make, oh, most Corey Wong albums, I'm kind of like lead rhythm guy. I right. love rhythm guitar, and I'll play melodies, and I'll play solos and stuff, but I like to weave in the rhythm parts kind of being a lead thing. But the way that I've tried to solve the riddle is, well, who cares if it's all guitar? And I do a, I do a lot of passing around. I come from funk background, and I'm from Minneapolis, so a right. lot of the Prince school of things, and mm -hmm. horn section being lead, keyboards doing leads, kind of all over the place. And that, to me, has always felt interesting enough for me to be able to release music like that, because then it's not just so much, ah, guitar, look at, uh, look at me play the guitar. <laughs> Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> And then I did this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, I I'm a guitar player because I love the people that inspired me as a little kid that played the instrument. And But I also, at the same time, I learned how to sing. I learned how to write. I learned how to, to, to be a team player. I learned a, a lot of other things, too. Mm -hmm. So I think they all kind of, they're all centered around one heart. Yeah. Somebody says, well, how do you... Think about what you play. I said, well, I kind of play what I might sing. Yeah. And then I might sing what I might play. If you were going to mm. play this, how would you sing it? You know, and some solos come to me by what I might sing in my head as much as play in, with, with my fingers. They all come from the same place. So they sound different, but they're the same. They're very, they're very much the same. What to you makes a good guitar solo? Melody. <laughs> There's a great Chet Atkins story. He was doing a he was producing this session and the guitar player was on the date or whatever and he said, Chet, I don't know I really don't know what to play it right here on the solo. Chet said, Well, the melody usually works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not as there's not as much melody in songs as there used to be either. I, I listen back to the solos that I I like the most that I've played over the years, and they wind up being I comp them together in in, in a way that makes it makes sense to me. But there's always there's always an element of the melody, I think, in my head to some degree and dancing around the melody, but not just, okay, here's your solo and you just go, you know, you just don't do that. But 
I think I always play with a sense of melody in my head. What are a couple instances where you feel like you've nailed that in your catalog? Uh, of guitar solos? Yeah. Oh, great question. Oh, good grief. If, if you'd asked me in 1980, I'd say one thing. If you asked me in 1990, I'd say another. And ask me 20, you know, just keep doing, you know, because I think that there's things that I I'm, I like much prefer. There was a solo I played on a Pure Prairie League record where I finally felt like I copped a really good Larry Carlton-ish kind of tone. <laughs> yeah. And I go, man, I finally got a really great tone like Larry gets, you know? Yeah. And maybe the solo was just okay, but the tone of it was pretty spectacular. I didn't play any solos on my last record on electric. It was all acoustic and yeah, just, I don't know. I think sometimes if I can... I can do something I haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Means a lot. I think the things that speak the most to me are the most subtle things that most people sure. are never going to pick up on. But the way that a string wept or kind of bent back down, or when it did it, and the the emotion in playing is what I'm probably more more thrilled with than the flash of playing. Same thing we talked yeah. about earlier. You know, certain tones. Um, an old record of mine that. I think has one of the best Telecaster tones was a, a song called Young Man's Town uh, on a record, Next Big Thing, it was called, the album. And it's just a little eight-bar turnaround solo and just the things and the way that I bent and played and uh, just felt spot on and good and reminiscent of an old Haggard record or mm. whatever that, that made me feel like you did a good job learning some of the yeah. great old stuff, you know? Have you felt like you've talked about honoring the thing, the exact authentic thing? Do you feel like in your guitar playing, you've tried to nail the sound of your heroes more? Or do you feel like you've been trying to find your own voice on the guitar more? I think the, the, the latter. You know, I really think that I, while I've, I've emulated around, like I, I did a record with a steel player named Paul Franklin about six, seven years ago called Bakersfield. Yep. And it was, we did all Merle Haggard songs and all Buck Owen songs. And so there's nothing more not interesting to me than a sound-alike record where you yeah. ape every solo, every song, sure. all that kind of stuff. It doesn't, it's already been done. So I never saw the point in that. But if you can kind of dance around it and use a little bit of it and find new ways to play it, that's that's appealing to me. And some of those those records were neat because, once again, it was not trying to be flashy, but it was trying to be respectful of the era, uh, of the time, uh, but yet maybe in a little bit newer way. And so, yeah, it's just it's always trying to dance with dance with the the moment, try to find the best you can out of what it is. There's times that I'm I'm playing and I'm greatly frustrated. You know, it won't come. And I said, well, we need to put it down. Come mm-hmm. back later, try it another time, or the tone's just not just quite right. I know you know this that if the tone for you and the sound is inspired for you, you'll play better. Absolutely. You just will, and so that's that's part of it too. You dance around looking for the right amp and the right thing to fit in the right spot of, you know, records are like this half circle to me. The way I look at a record, and your job is to fit in that space. Right there, not not this much space, but just that much space, and do the best you can to to find your way into there where everybody still has the same same presence they always did. Every, I think every session is different. Like every record's different. Yeah. Every song should be different. So I just play what my heart tells me to play. Hope that people like it. I like that. 
to overgeneralize, but also kind of not because I'm thinking more in radio terms, the role of the guitar in country music in the 1980s, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, up until now, the role of the guitar has changed quite a bit. And the functionality and like you're saying, how much space you're taking up as a guitar player. Now, of course, because this is a guitar podcast, that's kind of what I want to focus on, the role of the guitar in country music. How are you feeling about that role these days, and where do you see it going? Well, that's a great question, because no matter what music you take, you know, and we're going to take country music and kind of expose it a little bit, but sure, um, it's just kind of all of a sudden, you know, if it's 1960, you only have so much history to look back on. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's 1985, there's 25 more years of, of all kinds of music that have gotten to evolve and change and be different, and yeah. then from 85 to now— and so now you see the role, you see more loopy kind of things, you see more delay kind of things and just ding, ding, you know, little, little hooky parts and things and things that, that are on these records now that, that are not, they're not featured so much. There's not so much emphasis on soloing. You know, I, I look back at my career and I remember great solos of a, of a Steely Dan record, Kid Charlemagne and go, there's Larry or... Or or Jay Graydon on Peg or God reeling in the years with with uh, Skunk and and that and that's just one band. But then you got Clapton, you got Jimi Hendrix, you got Page, you got and then you go back to Scotty Moore when he played with Elvis and he played all this new stuff that was rockabilly and swinging and and that era of peop- of, of rock and roll. You know, like Chuck Berry, it had swing against the straight eights. Yeah, and it had a different dance. It was da ding ding da ding ding instead of da na 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 na. It had both, and it really swung because of the swing music that was going on prior to that. That's the way the players played. And so now, guitar players they know about edge. They know about this guy, that guy, that guy. And they know all these different things. And people are there's hip hop. There's you know certain sounds that that are on records now that you go, that would have never been on a country record 20 years ago and or 40 years ago. And it's all just evolves and takes along with it all the history of everything else that's come up to that point, you know. And so I, I like to see what they're doing. You know, is it for me? Not always. But when I was breaking in, I probably wasn't what George Jones and Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and some of those guys liked as much as, mm-hmm. as other things. So it's kind of... Pointless to try to, you know, I never look down on, on young people doing what they love doing yeah, because they're inspired and they're just doing what they love. And that's one thing I've, I've let go of was how good somebody was. Mm. All that matters is, is that guy's playing because he loves it, yeah, you know, and the other guy's better, there's guys worse. That's always been the case, but man, let them, let them love what they're loving. That's, it's all good. Another story that I heard was that you were asked to join Dire Straits, but right? turned it down just to give a shot at maybe trying your own solo career. Is this true? This Tell is, me if this is true or not. This is true, buddy. But here's here's what was going on. I had uh, I had moved here in 1983, had a record deal with RCA. And as I tell people, I'd been making records for seven years, but I couldn't prove it because nobody had them. <laughs> I was failing miserably. And... In that process, that I was getting ready to to leave RCA and go to MCA, and um, with nothing to really think things were going to turn around, Mark calls in the middle of all that transition, and says, "Well, should I be in the band?" You know, and and 
going on a year a world tour for a year and a half. I would have solved all my financial problems because I wasn't making any money per se and had a house to pay for. And and everything on paper looked like, you dumbass, go do the Dire Straits gig. That'll yeah. save your life, you know? But I told myself, I said, man, if I do it, I said, it'll be admitting failure. Mm. And I said, I, I just, I feel like I have something to offer this world. I think I'm good enough. My ears tell me I can sing as good as anybody that does this. You know, maybe the right song hadn't shown up yet, but if I bail on me, then who who else is going to believe in me? So I called him and I said, man, I, I don't know why, but I'm going to turn this down. And it's probably a, 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 a an error, you know, because it would solve a lot of my problems. And I love the way you play and, and we would have a ball and all that. But I just think I have something to offer country music and I have to, I can't quit. I just can't give up on myself. So I turned it down, and lo and behold, a record a short time later called When I Call Your Name came out, and it was a massive hit. Yeah. And won awards, song of the year, single of the year, and sold a couple million records, and and bang, I was off and running, you know, and then it, it, the problem solved, you know, and then everything was was pretty much easy and cake for a little while, and, and everything was was running good, and the songs were coming, and the success was happening, and it, it, I got lucky. Is basically mm-hmm. what happened. But the beauty is, is that I got to be really good friends with Mark and wound up working on the record that he was going to make at the same time called On Every Street, I think. I did all the backgrounds, most of the backgrounds on, on that record for him and made a great friend and still got to work on the record. I just didn't have to go on the year and a half tour. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. You you kind of blew past something a little bit that I, I want to close out with. There's a lot of young players young artists right now trying to get going and maybe trying to get going as in they've been at it for a few months, some at it like seven years. You said you put out seven albums or been, you know, but nobody, <laughs> nobody knew about it. There's a lot of people that are trying to get going and can't seem to find their footing either in the industry and also just even in the world. You know, it's, it's a weird time, especially this year. Um, but I think in general with the analog world, the digital world, feeling like you belong in the in the just physical world, but also feeling like you belong in the digital world is something most of us have to reconcile with or or struggle with. What advice do you have to young artists or players struggling to find their identity in that or feeling like they're dealing with so much failure in trying to get going? I think uh, a couple of things. I think that so many people, sadly, only value themselves based on results. Mm. And in that, I mean, if I make a record and 100 people buy it or 10 million people buy it, not one note of that record changed. So you did what you did regardless. I don't think you can let the results be your definition of what you are, how you play, how you sing, whatever it is that you're doing. It may not work out, but it may. Here's the other thing is is my way is antiquated. You know, it doesn't, it's not quite the same. I had to go play every bar room in the world and every funky club. And I I don't, I guess some people are still doing that, but not, not to the degree that we did it. And the record company machine is a different animal now. You've got to go to the record company with all this social media profile and how many people you have that you, that, that like what you do. And you've got to do so much of the work before you ever get to the big machine kind of mindset. And I we never had any of that. 
just people kind of heard you play and sing and your songs, hey, this look, looks like something to take a chance on. Today, it's not it's not quite the same, but all that to say, still, to this day, no matter what, whether it's 19, you know, or 2020 or ni- 1980, nobody ever gets tired of a great singer singing a great song. That's mm-hmm. timeless. There's always, there's always a place for all of it. And I know it's easy for me to say this because I've, been, I've had a nice little bit of success in my career, but... I'd still be doing this if I was 63 years old and I was only playing in the Holiday Inn band five yeah. nights a week. I'd still want to play music if it was for 200 bucks a week, you know, and, and some people aren't willing to, to, to do that. You know, I left home at 18. I joined a bluegrass band and I rented a room in the attic of this guy's house, the attic, a little closet in the attic for 15 bucks a month, wow. you know, and I said, I'm... Uh, all I got to do is come up with 15 bucks to pay my rent this month. And, and, you know, I don't eat much and I get by and I got a gig that pays a couple hundred bucks a week here and there. And away I went, you know, and I just tried and I never let, I never let the results of, of how much I was making or how many records I was selling or any of that stuff define me. Yeah. And that's what I would encourage young people to understand is believe in what you're doing and, and don't let, don't let the results be, be your definition of, of, uh, what you are. I love that. That is such incredible wisdom. Vince, thanks so much for joining us today. What a treat. Well, yeah. It is. Thanks for wanting me to. This is cool. Well, man, I, I honestly, I'm, I could gush for another hour about how much I respect your playing and your musicianship and your singing and your songwriting, but I'm just such a huge fan and it's a real honor to have you. All right. I hope our paths cross. I want to come see your band. I would love that. Let's let's play in person. Let, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna get you we'll do two strats though. That's the only <laughs> that's the only rule. I'm gonna play rhythm and you do your lead thing. Fair enough. Are you kidding me? Vince Gill over here making me feel like we're best friends or something. There's something about certain people that are just very inviting in the way that they talk the way that they open themselves up to you. And Vince is definitely one of those cats, as you could tell by that last hour. So I'm really excited. I feel like I have a new friend. And hopefully we actually will sit down and play some guitar together because that would be a dream. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for checking us out. I'll see you next week. Peace.